Well, let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive into this. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being born and living in this country. Father, we uh, acknowledge the problems in our country and the challenges that face us as your representatives here, but I pray that you would give us faith to walk out your will in this place. I pray that you would give us courage to do it boldly, and I pray you would give us compassion to see the many needs around us. Please open our eyes tonight as we look back 2,000 years to the earliest disciples and see what can we learn from their faith journey. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as usual, text your questions in during class to that number. I think it's also on your handout. But if you have any questions about what we're going to talk about, feel free to, to do that. We're taking just a little bit to look at the early church and the first believers. How did they disciple one another? How did Jesus disciple the 12 and the many more? And how did the early church spread the faith? The book of Acts is where we'll spend our time, and it basically details, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. In other words, those 12, what did they do? But of course, it, it talks about the Acts of a lot of other people, the events that happened, but it really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because early believers and believers today do not think that we bring people to Christ. We tell the story, but it's the Holy Spirit that convicts people and brings them to Christ. And you'll see the heavy reliance on the Holy Spirit as we go through this. Well, let's start in Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to tell you the story, and then we'll jump into some text. But basically, Jesus told his disciples before he is resurrected, before he's left, he said, if you will wait in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will be given to you. And to at least some of those early disciples, it was given in a very, what we call a charismatic way. That's just a modern word that means it came with, with events and certain things that happened that were supernatural. They were beyond the natural. Not always, not consistently. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. Well, on the day of Pentecost, which was one of the Jewish feast days, it is 50 days after Passover. So Jesus is uh, crucified on Passover, basically, and then raised three days later. 50 days later, the disciples are in Jerusalem. And if you remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They begin to speak in other languages. That's, uh, it's a powerful miracle, but it's not within the scope of what I want to talk about. But it got people's attention. They said, this is really crazy because they're Jews from all over the world there. It's a feast day. I mean, people traveled to be there for Pentecost. And they said, this is crazy because every one of us hears them speaking in our language. And they come from, and it lists out all the different countries they came from. Well, that's miraculous. So they said, wonder what these guys have to say. And so Peter gets up and he begins to talk about What's happening? He said, guys, this is happening just as Jesus promised. And so he begins to talk about the resurrection of Christ. He said, you remember that guy, Jesus, that you guys crucified? Okay, bad move on your part, right? He's raised from the dead, and now you too can believe. And so our first slide is at the end of his speech. He says this, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord 
and Christ. So actually, I'll read the whole thing. I'll come back because I want to talk about certain pieces. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, meaning Gentiles, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, about 3,000 were added to their number. At this point in time, which you read in Acts chapter one, there were about 120 believers. And on this day, 3,000 were added to their number. So just a couple of things to talk about here is what you see happen all the time that they are preaching. In other words, one of the ways to get the word out and to begin to disciple people, make disciples, is to tell them about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And you will see the idea of the resurrection in almost every sermon in the book of Acts because, as Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians, without the resurrection, Christianity is just another philosophy of how you ought to live your life and be nice to people. It's the resurrection from the dead that puts the proof to all the promises that God has made. And so almost every sermon, as you read through Acts, watch and you'll see, talks about the resurrection. But he said he's made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord is a, is a really subversive term because Caesar was called Lord. And so he's making a claim, and you'll see this all through the book of Acts, You'll see it through the letters, and one of the reasons Christians got into trouble was they said Jesus is Lord, and they go, whoa, wait a minute, that is subversive, because Caesar is Lord, and they say, no, Jesus is Lord. It's as though they had another king, a rival king. He's made him both Lord and Christ. Christ is a Greek word, and it's, it's our word Messiah. So basically, he made him the Messiah, in other words, He's not only Lord, he not only has our allegiance and has the authority and the sovereignty over this world, he's also the one that was promised to you. In other words, the whole redemptive story, all the way from Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the cross, this is the fulfillment of all those promises. So he's making to the Jews, that's a powerful statement. It, it doesn't seem that way to you and me. We, Think about Jesus all the time as both Lord and Christ. That was a really subversive thing to say. Both of those were arguable. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Whoa, that's radical. And Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of all those promises. Well, when they heard this, they go, ooh, and we crucified him? Boy, that was a bad move. What can we do? And so they're cut to the heart. He said, repent which is, this is still true today, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You're gonna see this a lot, in the name of Jesus Christ. And what I wanna to talk to you about there is every time you see that in the New Testament, what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus Christ? It means to do it by his authority. 
In other words, this is happening not because you and I decided to do it. This is happening by the authority of Jesus. You're not appealing to God on your own authority. You're appealing in his authority. Let me give you a great modern-day example of this. Uh, the church is a pretty good size. This church is a pretty good size uh, institution. A lot of employees do a lot of work, you know, clinic, community center, school, etc. And so we have, uh, we're big enough to have like a purchase order system. You can't just spend money around here. It has to be approved and you fill out a purchase order. Well, usually that process is kind of slow. But I figured out a way to shortcut that. Our chief financial officer is a guy named Blake. Great guy. And here's what I figured out. If instead of putting my name on there, I put Blake's name and I sign Blake. Nobody questions me anymore. I get anything I want, right? They look at it and go, oh, the CFO wants this, let's go do it, right? I just figured this out. I don't know why more people haven't figured this out. But anyway, I guess most of them are probably in federal penitentiary somewhere. But anyway, I, I figured this out. And so the point is, it's whose authority? And that's what this is talking about. In the name of Jesus means by his authority. And God listens to Jesus because he is righteous. We alone, on our own, have no merit to bring. And this doesn't matter what your theological persuasion is. We have no merit of our own and say, I'm such a good guy that you need to listen to me. I'm such a good person that you need to do what I ask you to do. But Jesus does. And so when we are in Christ, when we have submitted our lives to Christ, we ask things in his name. And God does things because of his authority. So, first megachurch, by the way, 3,000 people. I believe the official definition of a megachurch is like 15,000 people or something. Well, this is interesting. I'm going to show you some pictures of where they were meeting in just a few minutes. But So you get in one day the first megachurch. But we think about church really differently than they did. So we're, we're going to move on, but this is too good an opportunity to, to pass up, is what did they think they were joining? Have you ever thought about that? So they become Christians. They become followers of Christ. They have repented, meaning they have turned the direction of their life around. They have changed their mind, their way of thinking. Think Romans chapter 12. You know, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To repent means to change your mind. So they turned and they began to follow Jesus Christ. What did they think they were joining? Well, today we think about joining the church, and they did too, but in a really different way. They thought they were beginning a way of life rather than joining an institution. And I'm not here to knock institutional church or church buildings or organization. We can do so much more together. We have been called to gather together. But sometimes I think we think we are joining an organization. And I, th I think we would be better served if, like them, we just thought we are, we are committing to a new way of life rather than joining an organization. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at how the early disciples lived. You've seen this passage because we use it a lot. This is the very next passage, Acts 2.42. So those 3,000, those people, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. I'll come back to that. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. So it's interesting, by the way, and I won't spend much time on this, but what did they do? They began learning. The apostles' teaching. What are they learning? They're learning about Jesus. They're learning the things that are in your and my New Testament. They are learning. He told this parable. He did this miracle. He taught this Sermon on the Mount. He, you know, they're learning about Jesus. Fellowship. Because you see, one of the first things they were taught is joining the kingdom of God, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, is actually being adopted into a family. That's how the early believers thought of what they were doing. They didn't think of themselves as joining a church, put that in quote marks, like you and I might think of joining a church. They thought of themselves as being adopted into a family and beginning to live a new way of life in this new family. That's how they thought about this. And I would urge you to think about it the same way. That's really the authentic idea behind Christianity. They did the breaking of bread. So fellowship was hanging out with your family. I mean, who's, who's opposed to that? Most of us don't get enough family time. The breaking of bread, which is a big deal, and to prayer. I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Uh, breaking bread, meaning eating together. You notice later in the passage, it talks about how they were eating together in their homes is eating together for Jewish people of that time meant acceptance. So for example, this is, uh, this is not in the Old Testament, but the ruling of that time is if you went into a Gentile's house, whether they're Christian or not, you know, you're a Jewish believer. Let's say you're a Jewish Christian. You, you, you're a Jew and you come to believe Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Lord and the Christ. And then you have a Gentile. They weren't raised Jewish and they also become a Christian. And they also believe Jesus. Your background as a Jew would say, well, I can't come to your house and eat with you because you're vile. You know, I guess if you're going to come to church with us, I'll have to accept you. But we just don't do that. You know, we don't eat with people like you. That's why meals were such a big deal in the early church. Because in their culture, and I would argue it's still true in our culture, in their culture, having a meal with someone said more than just we ate together. It said, you're accepted in my home. It's the hospitality. It's that kind of an idea. So you're going to see a lot of this. And, you, and I thought it occurred to me, you may wonder, so what's the big deal? You know, they went and got a burger together, right? They actually had people into their home and they became, they became kin because of their shared belief, regardless of their ethnic past. And that's why I think Christians, if we would just do more eating together with people that aren't like us, it would, it would really fulfill this same idea there. So early Christians were a melting pot. It brought a lot of people together. Even Jews on that day, the 3,000 who believed and became followers of Christ, some of those were Jews that lived in Crete, and they grew up in that customs. Others were people that lived in Mesopotamia. Others lived in Judea. They all grew up completely differently. 
and yet they come together around the table. It's that unifying approach. And then finally, prayer. And I think prayer is probably the underutilized thing. If you think about it, if you're just gonna say, here's what those, they spent their times doing, and there were four things on that list, and prayer is one of the things on that list. You know, so I think it's really important that we keep in mind that the authentic discipleship, that authentic early Christian, they were learning, they were sharing time with each other, fellowship, they would break bread together, they would eat together, that sign of acceptance, and they prayed. Everyone was filled with awe, they began to share, they began to act like a family. I mean, if you think about it, selling their possessions sounds communist to us, right? You're thinking, okay, that's just commie. You know, that's just communism, didn't work, doesn't work. It's cousin socialism, works just as poorly. You know, so we're thinking commune kind of a thing. Think family. Think your brother, your daughter, your cousin calls you up and says, I'm in a real bind, can you help me? If there is any way you can help them, you would probably help them. And that might mean you sold something and helped them with whatever need they had. Now, there are times when tough love is called for. I'm not saying that it's, it's blind. It wasn't blind for them. It's not blind for us. But the point is, you're motivated to do help your family. That's the way they thought of each other. This isn't the Bible saying we should all be communists and live in a commune, it just says treat everybody who follows Christ like they're your brother or sister and do for them like you would do your brother or sister. That was hugely powerful. A lot of people that came to Christ in that time, they heard the message, but they saw the way these people lived together, how they treated each other as family, that is the biggest evangelistic tool that you and I have. I'm not saying we don't need to go speak the word. We definitely are told to do that. But when Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples by your love, this is what they started to do. Everybody who was a believer, they got together regularly, they ate together, they took care of each other, they treated each other like family. Okay, this is an editorial comment. Our culture is so desperately in need of family. I mean, real, authentic, caring family. In America, the standard nuclear family, mom, dad, 2.3 children, is almost a thing of the past. You see us trying to reinvent family. Why are we even trying to reinvent family? You've got Disney uh, movies that are trying to tell you that family is just whoever you love. Have a big group hug, go home together. That's ridiculous. You see alternative families. Why are we even talking about families? Because everybody wants to be part of a family. People in the Jewish world looked at them and they said, oh my goodness, look how they care for each other. You didn't even know that guy until two weeks ago. Yes, but we both share Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. And so he's my brother, she's my sister. They began taking care of each other. That's as powerful a witness today as it was then. If we will act like a family, which is what we're called to, I think it'll be powerful in our culture as well. Well, they were gathering in the temple courts, and I thought we'd look at that for a minute. This is the, the temple mount in Jerusalem today. So what you see are the original retaining walls that Herod built back in 37 B.C.-ish, 
You know, in that time, there's big retaining walls here, and he put in this nice big flat floor. And then, right today, there is a mosque right there, but there used to be a temple. So I want to show you this picture. It's going to look smaller, but I want you to think huge place. 25 football fields, this, this area is huge. So this is a model from the Israel Museum, but this is what it looked like in the time of Acts. Herod is dead, but he's built this magnificent temple. He's built a huge temple courts. So when they're talking about gathering in the temple courts every day, they're talking about all this area. And I mean, it is huge area. Now, going into the temple, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go into the temple. This, this is forbidden if you weren't a Jew. And then, of course, you go further in, you have the court of the women, the court of the priests, etc. But they're gathering because they've got people that aren't Jewish who become Christians. Well, it's not like, oh, sorry, you guys have to stay out here. We're going to go into the VIP lounge. No. They stayed out in the temple courts, and anybody could go there. In fact, in our next story, it's going to happen right here. That area, that covered area with the columns was called Solomon's Colonnade. And it was just given, it was a covered area, nice things, just it's shady in there. And it's at one end, it's the southern end of the Temple Mount. This is uh, north, right there. And so that area was often used for gatherings. Well, these Christians, can you imagine? I mean, there's easily room for 3,000 people here, easily. I mean, it's a huge temple complex. But imagine 3,000 Christians getting together, coming up onto the Temple Mount and getting together in these temple courts and listening to the apostles preaching and praying and singing. I mean, this got everybody's attention like, wow, look at these people and their way of life. They didn't think about them as, oh, yeah, that's the uh, full gospel charismatic guys over there, you know, and then, you know, we've got our Presbyterians over there. They're not singing and they can't get their arms up very high. But, you know, it, it wasn't like that. It was like, look at those people and how they live. This is something really powerful. So our next story, by the way, happens here in Solomon's Colonnade. This is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. I don't know why this story just always gets me. So one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, there was a man who was crippled from birth, was being carried to the temple gate. They named all the gates, gates called Beautiful. And they carried him there, put him there every day to beg. Why? Because there is no social security. There is no Medicare, there is no Medicaid, and the only thing he can do is beg. And so he's got some friends who at least carry him up there and sit him by the gate all day. And so... Well, he was put there every day and he begged money from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, so these are two of Jesus' disciples, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. Which, by the way, this always gets me because I remember when Laura and I were in London, we were walking down a street one evening and a guy came up to, uh, and asked for money and uh, had a couple of euros in my pocket, and I remember we put it in his, in his cup, but I remember he never looked up. And I, it, this, this story always comes to me, and he basically looked at him, he said, look at us. I mean, treats him like a human being. He said, look at us. And so the man gave him his attention because he thought, well, they're probably going to give me something. 
Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you can walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Now this is... This guy's been crippled from birth. This is not like I've got plantar fasciitis and I'm just having a hard time getting around. I mean, this is a miracle. So his ankles and his feet became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, which he can now do because he's not crippled, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. You know exactly where this happened. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? By the way, every miracle... Why? Every miracle in the book of Acts is a reason for a sermon. In other words, miracles don't happen just to say, wow, isn't that just awesome? Miracles happen to get people's attention so you can tell them about Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he does. He said, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why are you staring at us as if it's by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And then, I'll let you read this, but in Acts 3, he launches into a sermon. He basically launches into telling them, let me tell you how this happened. I've got to tell you about Jesus Christ of Nazareth and what happened. And he begins to tell the good news about Jesus. So this crippled man, this story, this incident is always an opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. And I think that's a good lesson for us too. When we think about discipleship, we tend to think about it being some professional thing that happens. Well, you've got professional disciples and you've got professional preachers. And but really, every incident of God working, and it doesn't have to be miraculous, is an opportunity to tell the story about Jesus. And for you and for me, it's often the opportunity to say, well, just let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, but I don't have a dramatic testimony. You know, should I go become a drug addict? and have bad things happen, so then I could say, huh, you should have seen me, where Jesus found me. Some people have powerfully dramatic stories, but everybody has a powerful story. I once was this, and I now am that. Here's the problem with dramatic stories. They, they touch everybody's heart, and they're great to hear. All of us go, oh, wow, that tells you that surely God is great. But I found that not that many people react to it. That's just my personal statistics. I've got no uh, official numbers on this, but I don't think people react that well. They get a warm, fuzzy feeling in their heart, but does it actually change my mind? You know what ended up changing my mind, besides the scripture, was talking to people who were like me and said, I used to be this and now I'm that. I could understand that. That hit home to me. If you tell me this dramatic story, it's powerful. I'm not knocking it, but I couldn't identify with that very much. I, I wasn't there. I think God's awesome for doing that for you, but what's that to me? But when I saw somebody like me who said, let me tell you what I used to be, let me tell you what it is now, and this is what Jesus had done for me, that actually had the ring of veracity to me 
It's like, okay, I can identify with you. And that's why we're all different and that's why we all need to tell our story is there's no one size fits all testimony, if you will, our, our testimony. We literally are giving testimony. We are witnesses. You know, the whole idea of evangelism is witnessing. I know that's a real Christianese word, but it's literally true. It's like, well, I swear to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, too bad. You know, you still got to swear. But I'm going to tell you what happened to me. We are literally witnesses giving a testimony, and it doesn't have to be dramatic. And in this case, it was very dramatic. I mean, obviously, in the sense that it was a miracle, you see a lot of things where God is working, and those are always opportunities to tell people. So the idea of discipleship, I also want you to think about, sometimes that's people talking and the Holy Spirit convicting people. Sometimes it's people living authentic Christian family life and people going, I definitely want that. In other words, that's what's missing in my life. I have no one who cares about me like that. That's also uh, witnessing to people bringing them into a discipleship, and then telling our stories. Those are also ways that the early church would disciple people, is telling them what God did. Then chapter 4 ends with almost a repeat of chapter 2. You get this same idea, and I just I want to hammer this home because if you start reading the book of Acts and you look at the early believers, this is how they thought of themselves. This is how the Bible describes them. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. In other words, everybody realized you're a steward of what God has given you. And they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. Marty talks a lot about this. Is what would that look like? For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. People still do that at this church. It's just it's amazingly faithful. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. The thing I would want to talk to you about this is I don't want you to think that we as Christians don't care about people in the world. Well, that's just obviously not the case. I mean, look at just this one church of the thousands you know, in this country and how much happens outside these walls. Our faith has to be worked out through love. In other words, our faith works itself out and becomes real in the loving acts that we do. But when they're talking about this in Acts, they're talking about how they treated other Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is they were treating family members like this, treating other Christians like this, were they helping other people? Probably to some extent, but their focus at this point was on this family. Would they help other people at need? Well, obviously, Peter goes up and says, by the authority of Jesus Christ, I think he will heal you. Give me your hand. And up he goes, and off they go. But when they're talking about selling their possessions, putting everything together, I want you to think family, because that's what they were, they were doing. In fact, one of the stories really talks about some trouble this is a passage you probably know, but as the church gets larger and they're trying to take care of their family members, in that society, crippled people, people that couldn't work, beggars, very, very vulnerable. And the other vulnerable class were obviously children, orphans, and widows. In that culture, again, there's no social safety net. 
If you don't have any family to take care of you, then you are going to starve or you're going to beg or you're in a, a world of hurt. A lot of widows, this happened to them. They were marginalized in, in the culture in general. And so one of the things the early church did was, and you'll see the Apostle Paul write about this too. He said, if you have young widows, put them to work. They can be helping everybody else. If you have people who can't work, that's fine. But basically, they were sharing food. This is the first social program. I mean, this is the social safety net. You're a widow and you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, you can come eat at my house. In other words, I'll make sure you don't starve. And that's what they were doing. But people being people, they began to feel like their ethnic differences start to creep in a little bit. And it's not worthy of them, but listen to this. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. I'll tell you who we're talking about because it's important. These are all Christians. In other words, they're all people who were Jewish who follow Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about. Some of them were raised in Judea, and they spoke Hebrew. They actually spoke Aramaic, but you know what I mean. They were Hebrew Jews. There were also Jews who were raised in other parts of the world. And so they were Greek in the sense that they grew up in Greek culture because Greek culture was pretty pervasive in the rest of the world. Ever since Alexander the Great had conquered most of the world 300 years before. So they spoke Greek. They didn't even speak Aramaic. And they grew up in a different culture. They're both Jews, both become Christians, but they're sort of like, yeah, well, you aren't from around here, are you? You know, it's kind of one of those, you don't act like we do. And so they began to, re to complain that they felt like, uh, and this is just human nature, this is people who are not yet uh, sanctified. They were complaining because their widows, the Greek widows, Christian widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what are they saying? They're saying, look, you, we may both be Christians and we may both be family, but you guys are taking better care of the ones who grew up in Judea than you are the ones that grew up in Italy or grew up in, in Greece. It's interesting to see what the early church did. So the 12 apostles gathered all the disciples together, probably on the Temple Mount. By the way, they don't have a building. They don't have anywhere to meet. Temple Mount, great place to meet, huge, big area, right? So they gather them all together, and they said, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. They did not say, I want you to get people who have master's degrees in restaurant management. Think about what they're looking for, who find us people that are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who laid their hands on them and prayed over them. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith as well. So the interesting thing about these people is, remember, the Greek-speaking Christians said the Hebrew-speaking Christians were not taking good enough care of their widows. So that is a Greek name. That is a Greek name. That is a Latin name. That is a Greek name, that is a Greek name, that is a Greek name, that is a Greek name. Isn't that interesting? These 
are Greek Christians. So their solution was to go above and beyond. And they said, very well, pick seven Greek Christians and you guys do it. In other words, it's that kind of a family thing. There wasn't any squabbling like, okay, we need four seats on this panel so we can outvote the three Greeks on the panel. They said, you guys do it. That's the kind of way that you see unity in the church. That's the way this church works most of the time. It's not quibbling over little things. It's sort of a, okay, I'll submit to you. Think of the passage in Ephesians that talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then goes on to begin to explain what that looks like, but that's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's evidence of discipleship happening. That's evidence of us turning from our selfish ways to more God-fearing ways. So this was a great story about how it began to affect who they were and what they did. Also, I think this is really interesting, a number of priests, it doesn't say a number of priests became Christians, didn't say a number of priests began to believe, both of those things are true, but look at that, became obedient to the faith. Because the reality of this is, is the faith following Jesus Christ means to become obedient to Jesus Christ. And that's why you begin to see the church working out the old selfish ways and working in the more unified, family-oriented ways. That's what discipleship looks like. If you ever wonder, am I becoming a better disciple? Sometimes we think, well, do I know more? Well, that's good. That's one of the things they did. But that's not really all that's involved. Am I doing my quiet time regularly? I can't find that in here. I've looked and looked, you know. So the point is, is that's a good practice. It's a good habit. But in and of itself, it's not discipleship. What is the measure of discipleship? Am I looking and acting more and more like Jesus and less and less like the old selfish me? Am I willing to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Am I treating my brothers and sisters. I mean, that's where that comes from. Do you guys ever, by the way, grow up in a church that called everybody brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so? We don't do that, and I think we should start because I just think it's cool. Yeah, I became a Christian uh, later in life in a really tiny little church in Kentucky. All of a sudden, I had more brothers and sisters than I ever knew what to do with. I mean, everybody's brother and sister, but that's where that comes from. It's not a Christian title. It's reflective of the fact that when you become a Christian, you join God's family. That's why in the New Testament, I don't know if you've ever wondered, but every letter says brothers or brothers and sisters. Why do they start the letters that way? Because that's how they thought of what they were doing. They weren't joining a church. They were adopting a new way of life and being adopted into a family. So that's a, it's just a powerful idea. Well, one of these guys, I want to talk to you about it, one more aspect of this, uh, the idea of discipling people. And this is a powerful one for us. We've talked about preaching, we've talked about living out our faith, we've talked about telling our story. But I want to tell you about, uh, we fast forwarded two chapters, so let me tell you what happened. So remember Stephen, the guy, one of the seven guys that was chosen? What happened to Stephen was, he was so good at presenting the gospel that the people that wanted to argue with him, and he wasn't mean to them, he just, he just could say, look, read the Old Testament right here, look what it happens, it's producing Jesus. And they became enraged that they couldn't refute what he was saying. It's like, yeah, that's pretty much it. And so they stirred up trouble against him, 
and they said he's blaspheming. He's saying Jesus is the son of God. Was he saying that? You bet he was saying that. He was guilty as charged. So they bring him up and they say, do you have any last words? Oh my goodness, longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's great though. I mean, just pick it up in chapter seven and read this. He starts at the beginning. Maybe he knew he was gonna die. But anyway, he starts at the beginning, seriously. Tells the whole history of the Jews. I mean, it is a great little sermon in the sense that it just walks through the whole redemptive story. And he ends up at Jesus Christ. And so they stone him, they killed him. So chapter eight says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. Now think about it. There are thousands and thousands of Christians used to meeting in the temple courts. And once they killed Stephen, they decided fair game on all these people. So what happened? The church scatters. People leave Jerusalem. Let me stop there and see if we have a question because I wanna tell you what one guy who left, what he did. I think it's really a good example for us, but let me pause for a minute. Question? Um, in Acts 6, 7, where it says a large number of priests became obedient, who are the priests? Are they Jewish priests? Yes, that's a great question. I should have mentioned that. Who are those priests that became obedient to the faith? They were the priestly class of Jews. So I'm trying to think of a, a good way of thinking about this. It would be like, so they were Jews and they were becoming Christians, but they were priests in the temple. Don't think preaching. Think doing the sacrifices, sacrificing the animals and lighting the lamps and they're working. It's sort of like, if you, let's say you go to a Mercedes dealership and so they're, everybody there's driving a Mercedes. Okay, this is a thought experiment, right? That doesn't actually happen that way. But say all the employees are driving Mercedes. You come along with a new car, you've got a Prius. And so you come bopping in in your Prius and you know, the Mercedes salesmen are like, you gotta be kidding me. But a bunch of people start driving Priuses. And then all of a sudden, all the salespeople at the Mercedes dealership start driving Priuses. You're like, oh my goodness, you guys, even you guys are doing this now. That's exactly what they were thinking. Even the priests, most committed to Judaism, are becoming convinced that Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. So they were Jewish priests, who became believers that, you know what? I believe you're right. I've studied the scriptures and I should know, they should know. They would have been like the preachers of the time or the, the officials and they were becoming Christians. So that's a great question. It basically says it had gotten to the point where these weren't just ignorant people. These were people who knew the scriptures and they were saying, you know what? I believe that's right. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. You have shown me that from the scripture. Well, that's what they were doing. And one of the other seven that were chosen to be the first deacons to take care of people was named Philip. And Philip, he's called Philip the Evangelist a lot. So when they scattered from the persecution, you, this is like the worst thing you could do if you were the Jews. All right, if you wanna stamp out Christianity, keep them all in Jerusalem. Instead, they start persecuting them and what happens? Now you've got by any kind of fair measure, you probably got 20,000 at least. I mean, it could have been 100,000 for all I know, but at least 20,000 Christians who take off every which direction. If you're a Christian 
You can't think of a better marketing campaign than this. It's like, sure, make them all leave. They're all just going to go preach all over the world. That's exactly what they did. And one of the guys is named Philip. So godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, this is the apostle Paul, his Hebrew name is Saul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This is why they left. Being a Christian would get you in prison and could get you stoned like Stephen. So they all said, might be a good time to go to the lake house. Let's go. You know, and so they left town, right? And they all scatter everywhere. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. In other words, well, can't go to Jerusalem right now because they're trying to kill me. But hey, by the way, have I ever told you about Jesus Christ? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're just going to take why? Because that's who they are. That is now who they are. So this guy, Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Now think about that. The Samaritans, remember what Jesus, how he, you know, the people of the time thought about the Samaritans. Philip goes, well, I'll just head up to Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. That's why miracles happen. They all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many people who were paralyzed or crippled were healed. There was great joy in that city. So if you remember, this is Philip's travels. He went this direction. These are not Jewish people. They think they're Jewish people, but the Jews hate these people in Samaria. But he went up there preaching to them. In fact, I'll pre he says, I'll preach to anybody. I don't care what your background is. And that's the unique thing about Christianity, isn't it? I don't care what your background is. Anyone can repent, be baptized for the remission of your sins, and follow Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he did. The next thing he does, though, he comes back to Jerusalem, apparently, and in this next passage, this is really an interesting passage, God, he gets a word from God that says, I want you to take the road to Gaza. Where is Gaza today? It's still Gaza. Were they shooting rockets in those days? No, they were not but it was still not you know, a vacation spot to go. So this is today, still Gaza, but he was told to get on this road and go down to Gaza. And Ethiopia in Africa is down here. So, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, why don't you go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. First of all, he's a eunuch. If you're a Jew, there's not much lower than a eunuch. So this guy has been probably as a child, because this is graphic, this part's PG-13. I'll try to, I don't think we have any kids in here. But anyway, so basically what they did was they'd take these young boys that were slaves and they would castrate them. Then they would bring them up and teach them, you know, how to be good administrators, etc. And they became oftentimes very powerful, trusted officials. Why were they trusted? Well, they could be bribed, but they're certainly not going to fall for the pretty face that comes along, right? And says, hey, why don't you help me you know, murder the king? It's like, no, sorry. And so eunuchs became very uh, trusted. And so the fact that he is a high official managing the treasury, that's very common in that time. But Jews thought of that as mutilation. And so if you were a eunuch, you could never go into the temple. Now, he's been worshiping. He believes in, the, in God and is a Jew in the sense that he is a God-fearing Jewish person. He can't go in the temple at all. So he's kind of a second-rate Jew, but he's clearly very, very devout. So this is who Philip meets. 
And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way back to Ethiopia was sitting in his chariot. This guy's important. He's not walking. He's in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, you got that nudge. Go to that chariot and stay near it. By the way, you and I still get those nudges. I'm not saying the Spirit's speaking to you, but have you honestly ever had something happen you thought was, quote, a divine appointment where you just felt like, you know, I just, I think I, I, I just feel like I ought to go get involved here. I think that's the nudging of our conscience. That's the nudging of the Spirit within us. Whether or not that's what happened to him, I don't know. But he said, so he ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Now I know what you're thinking. How can you hear the guy reading Isaiah the prophet? Because back in those days when people read, they read out loud. The idea of reading a book silently is a very, very new thing. Did you guys realize that? Up until not that long ago, everybody read out loud. And so he's reading out loud from the scroll of Isaiah, which by the way, he also has money because you don't get your own scrolls unless you have money because they're all hand copied. This guy's important. So Philip ran up to the chariot. When he heard him reading, he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, this is Isaiah 53, it's a messianic prophecy. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch said, tell me, who is Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, there's some water, why shouldn't I be baptized right now? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And then when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way. So, I mean, it's a really interesting story in and of itself. But the point I really wanna make about this is, and this, cause this is so relevant to you and me. Sometimes we wanna just tell our story and go our way. But Philip gets into the chariot and travels with him. And that's what discipleship looks like. That's why we, we want to make sure that we have a one-on-one -on -one discipleship uh, a culture. It's not a program, it's a culture. You can go to, uh, on the next several Wednesday nights, we have a little class that will give you the material and help you disciple somebody one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, or be discipled by someone one-on-one. -on -one. It involves prayer, and learning the Bible and doing life together. It's a commitment. And that's what discipleship's really about. Discipleship is actually getting in the chariot and going the same direction with someone. So while preaching is great, you see it happening, while teaching is great, while studying is great, discipleship tends to happen best when people actually do life together. That's what those early Christians were doing. They were eating together, they were worshiping together, they were praying together, they were studying together. In other words, they were in the chariot together, moving along. And so for us, when we meet people who are new to Christ or people who, whom Christ has clearly called and they repent and move on, we don't, we don't have the luxury at that point of just saying, hey, great brother, it's nice to see you. 
see at church one of these days. You know, we, we need to get into the chariot with them and let's walk down the road together a while. That's what discipleship looks like. And I would urge you, if there's nobody in your life doing that with you, go to that class. Let's find somebody to do that with you. And those of you that have been Christians for a while, even though I know what you're gonna say is, well, I don't know enough to do this, we'll give you the material. You don't have to know very much to do this. It's not about what you know. It's just about your faith and your following Christ. Well, I'm not a good enough person to do it. Trust me, none of us are. That's not the point. And that is, then let's go find somebody, like the Ethiopian, who says, I need to have this explained to me. Would you come ride in my chariot? Would you come do life with me for a while? We really are called to that. And we'd like to have a culture of doing that at our church. And I think all churches would like to have a culture of that. So it's something you'll hear more and more about here. But I just think this story is always so powerful to me because you actually have to do what I call skin-on-skin -skin ministry. And it's something, by the way, that the pastors here do a lot of is you do a lot of programming in a big church like this, but that's not the same as walking with people. And every pastor on this staff, on this staff does something that's skin-on-skin. Like, I'm gonna work with this one person, or I'm gonna be a part of this group, or I'm gonna go serve food here, or whatever. And, and all of us need to do that because we're called to walk with people, not just to do programs. Does that make sense? It's easy in a big institutional church to just do programs. And they're important, they do good things. But every one of us needs to have that one-on-one -on -one contact at some point, okay? Well, that's getting kind of preachy. But anyway, so wrapping this up, it's interesting when you look at the early church, and I would urge you read the book of Acts, is how did they live? And I, if I could do anything, I would say, I would love for us to think about our Christian lives the way they thought about their Christian lives. I understand we live in the 21st century. I understand we have church buildings. Nothing wrong with any of that. But sometimes it can slip into thinking that I belong to a church. I'm part of an organization. Better to think of, I have a family that I belong to and we act like family and we treat each other like family. Okay, now I know some of you are gonna go, really, you should see my family and how we argue. Okay, that happens here too, but we're committed to one another and that's what discipleship looks like. Next, next week we will be gone like I told you. On the 27th, I wanna start a series. I wanna go through the Gospel of Mark but here's why I wanna go through the Gospel of Mark. First, we haven't done it. Secondly, I really like to talk about Jesus. But the Gospel of Mark is almost certainly the oldest account of Jesus' life. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Matthew and Luke both contain about 60% of the same kind of stories that are in Mark. Most scholars think Mark's probably written first, early, I would argue in the 50s, like within, within 20 years of the resurrection. That is the first written account of Jesus' life. I think you'll find it fascinating. So what we're gonna start on the 27th is we're just gonna go through the Gospel of Mark. Bring your Bibles, write notes in it. It's, if you've never done this, it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna get to learn a lot about Jesus and we're gonna learn it from the oldest existing source that there is. Thank you guys for your attention. Think about the discipleship, and let's think about recapturing what the early disciples did. I appreciate you guys. Thank you.